Thessalonians. So we've been looking at this book and studying the scriptures in the first part. And this morning, we're going to probably finish up chapter one of this book. We're going to get through all the scriptures. Really, it's a pretty relatively short chapter in scripture. It's only 10 verses. It's not very long as far as, as far as chapters go. So we're going to do our best to get through the rest of this chapter this morning and to finish up with at least chapter one. And so what we have been looking at is really what Paul has been showing us as a snapshot of the church at Thessalonica. He went there, he shared the gospel. You can see the story in Acts chapter 17. He began preaching the gospel there, him and Silas. This was Paul's second missionary journey. And we see a church began there. They came to faith in Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And what we know about that story is that Paul is ripped away from them very quickly because Paul's life was in danger, so was Silas. And so Paul is writing this letter in response to what he has seen out of this church. He really tells us in chapter 1 the kind of church that they have became after that point of believing in Christ. And so it gives us an introduction of what Thessalonica was like, what this church was like, but it's also a reminder to us about what should be produced in every single church and in every single Christian. Every single Christian should have the things that we're going to see this morning because we want to know that something is genuine. Right, church? We want to know that something is real especially when we're talking about our salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter says, "...so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold." There's no material possession out there that's more valuable than the faith that we possess through Jesus. There's nothing. We do this in, in the real world, world, don't we? When we go to purchase something of value, we want to make sure it's genuine. We, we don't want to be scammed. Am I the only one that doesn't want to be scammed? No? Good. For example, in my life, and you can ask my wife, she'll start probably smiling and kind of laughing. She's smiling now. Look at her. She's wonderful. In my life, I like to, like to look at what, honey? What? Guitars. I like to look at guitars. A couple, amen. Thank you, Nick. A couple years ago, I really got into looking at the guitar market. I've played for quite a while now, and I'm not very good, as most of you know now. But I like to look at different guitars. And there's a side in particular called Reverb. has hundreds of thousands of guitars. That's not an exaggeration. Hundreds of thousands of guitars. And you can find guitars brand new all the way back to original late 1800s, early 1900s. It's insane. And when you're looking at some of these instruments, you start to see that these are much more valuable than what you would have ever thought. One instrument in particular, for example, would be like a 1959 Gibson Les Paul Sunburst. When they first came out in the late 50s, everybody hated them. No one wanted them. And so now they're extremely valuable. One of those might run you somewhere in the four dollars to $500,000 range. That's one guitar. That's not a house included in that. That's just a guitar, right? And so as you're getting into that kind of value, you look for genuineness of these things. Because if you're going to drop, especially that kind of money, which I never will, but if you are, you want to make sure it's the real thing, don't you? You want to make sure it's genuine. And so even now, I'm getting into the market and looking at things. I think of some of the things, some of the factors that I've been told should be there. Right? Like the, the head stock of the guitar should look a certain way. The, the logo should be that way. Oh, that serial number doesn't look right. right? We do this in physical things. And Paul is going to tell us this morning, we should also do that with our faith. We should look at our faith and say, is this genuine? Is this real? And so what we're going to see this morning is three factors to what I believe should be in every Christian. Three factors to what should be there in genuine Christian belief. So if you would look there with me 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, we see first and foremost that this church had a repentance that was demonstrated. Look there in verse 9. Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. Now, a little bit of backstory. At this point, there was a report that Paul is talking about that was circulating among the people in different areas. More than likely, Gentiles or Greeks, they were, they were circulating a couple things about this church. One was about their hospitality. We see that in verse 9. It says, report concerning us the kind of reception, as Paul's saying, how they received them when they shared the gospel, how they received Timothy, how they're receiving other Christians. This church had a legacy of hospitality. They were demonstrating that. That was the first thing. They were hospitable. But also, the more importantly, he said, not only is there hospitality, but there was repentance. Look there in verse 9 again. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. This is repentance. Paul says, because of this report, it's been seen and people have noticed and people are telling us that you have repented. You have a lifestyle of repentance. So this morning, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that word, repentance. What is repentance? What does it mean? Well, just to put it simply, repentance means to turn away from something and to turn towards something. Did you know repentance is a continual command that we see in Scripture? Not only a continual command, but it's continually demonstrated by people throughout Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. A few examples. King David. Anyone ever heard of him? Three people. King David, for example. We see King David, although he was a man after God's own heart, he had a time in his life as king where he sinned greatly. Sinned with Bathsheba. In Psalm chapter 51, David writes in response to Nathan the prophet going to him and, and showing him, David, you have sinned against God. And so David writes this, this psalm, and it's a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of regret. We see it in the response from Nineveh. Remember Nineveh, Jonah, the well? Nineveh, when they believed the message of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. This is after Jonah is actually in Nineveh and he's sharing the, the truth of God and telling them what's going to happen. And the message gets to the king, and this is part of what the king says. He says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, that's a sign of mourning or sorrow, and let them call out, to, call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. And most of us know what happens in that story. God relents because they repented. Time and time again, we see Israel. They're commanded and told by different prophets, different judges, different kings. God Himself, turn from your wicked ways. We see it in John chapter 3 with Jesus. I'm sorry, with John the Baptist. We'll get to Jesus in a minute. With John the Baptist, He tells the Pharisees, after He calls them brood of vipers, He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus, early in His ministry, He says, going around telling people, repent and believe the gospel. We see it in Acts chapter 2 with Peter. He preaches this first Christian message and the people who believe, they say, what do we need to do? And Peter says, first of all, repent. Repentance. We see it constantly throughout Scripture and we should still see it in the lives of believers today. Repentance is the acknowledgement, desperation, and response to understanding your sin against a holy, righteous God. It is the natural response when you understand your sin in light of who God actually is. Not our idea of Him, but what Scripture tells us that He is really like. Did you know God is perfect? Crazy, right? God is holy. He is completely holy. 
He is without sin. He is blameless. There is nothing false. There is nothing wrong in Him. And so repentance is seeing that, understanding who He is, and then in turn understanding who you have been. That's where we see repentance come in. It is this brokenness. It is this desperation because you know what you have done and how you have offended God. That's what sin is, isn't it, church? Offense towards a holy, righteous God. That's what it is. And we should understand that as the authority grows, so should the punishment for our sin and our offense towards God. I heard a story of a pastor years ago. He was, he was in, in mission somewhere, somewhere in the, the southeast, southeast Asia. And he was going around and he was sharing the gospel and he happened to be in this, this taxi and he was telling, telling the taxi driver about, about Jesus and he was trying to explain to him just, just the gravity of our sin. And he said, let me ask you something. He said, what would happen? This is a pastor talking to the taxi driver. He said, what would happen if I slapped you in the face? Taxi driver said, well, I'd probably hit you back, as most of us would, right? If I slapped you in the face, which that'd be weird if your preacher slapped you in the face on a Sunday morning, wouldn't it? That wouldn't be good. How was church? Not good. Not good. I got hit. But he said, what if I slapped you in the face? He said, well, I'd probably hit you back. He said, okay, what if I went to your police force and I, I struck one of your officers? What happened to me? He said, well, you'd, you'd be arrested. You would assault him. He said, what if I rushed to your king and struck your king? And the taxi driver kind of laughed and said, you'd be killed. And from that, the pastor, tell, the, the pastor tells the taxi driver, he said, yes, it's not that we're offending a person. It's not that we're offending a government. It's that we're offending the holy, righteous God who has all authority and all power. And because of our sin, we understand that there's punishment, there's wrath to come, but through the message of the gospel, there is a chance for repentance. Repentance, again, is the acknowledgement, desperation, and response to understanding your sin against a holy, righteous God. And it should be at the heart of every single Christian. Every single Christian should begin at that place of repentance. It also only tells us that it is a turning away, but it also carries the idea of having a change of heart, a complete change of direction and belief. And Paul says this church at Thessalonica, they demonstrated that. And we'll get into that in a moment. In understanding that repentance means to turn, it implies two truths that is in every repentance. The idea of turning away from something. One, you're turning from something, but in turning away from something, you're also turning towards something. That's what repentance is. And in someone turning away from something, we're going to look at and talk about what this church turned away from. Verse 9, look there again. Verse 9, it tells us that they turned away from idols. This tells us more than likely that most of the church was pagan. Most of them didn't know who God was, didn't worship God at all. And so when they turned away from idols, they were pagan. They didn't believe in who God really was. And so their repentance was turning away from these idols, from this culture of idolatry. Years ago, I had the opportunity to go on mission to a place called India. You ever heard of it? It's a subcontinent. It has about 1.2 billion people on it and growing. And in this subcontinent, and by the way, years ago, you, this church was instrumental in supporting me and sending me. Some of you may remember me going. Uh, so thank you for doing that. It's, it was an incredible experience, and God really worked there. But going there to India, I went in knowing that 90% of that 1.2 billion population was Hindu. Hinduism, of course, it's a pagan belief. They worship idols, and the number is somewhere in, like, I think it's three million idols, I think is what, that they, what they worship. And that's one thing I remember when I think about India, is going there, is that this place culturally was completely permeated with idolatry. Everywhere you looked, there was idolatry. There was a time we had to go on a 10-hour road trip in India, going to a different place, going down south to a place called Mysore. 
And in the middle of nowhere, no villages, no people, there would be idols. There would be temples. There would be places of pagan worship. Everywhere you looked, in the middle of cities, there would be idols on rooftops. There would be idols on street corners. There would be idols in every single house. It was everywhere. And so when we think about this, this people turning from idols, we have to understand that they completely abandoned them. They didn't try to tack Jesus on to these other idols that they had. They completely turned away from what they had believed previously. I've seen this demonstrated in India. The Christians that we partnered with, Cyril, who we talked about earlier, uh, he was the pastor who was leading us around, making sure that we, we didn't get into any kind of crazy trouble. He took care of us, and we stayed in his home. And in his home, in every home, every dwelling place, whether it's an apartment, whether it's a house, there's a prayer closet already built in. That's how, how permeated this place is with idolatry. And you know what he used that, that prayer closet for? Storage. He didn't have an idol in it. He just had boxes. That's storage, just like we would have any other closet. It was such a testimony to see these believers in India completely abandoning not only their belief, but their entire culture of idolatry. And what we see about this church in Thessalonica is that that is exactly what they did. See, repentance, when we turn away from something, we completely abandon it. We don't look back and think, oh, maybe I should go back and try it again a little bit longer. In repentance, we see what it was, we see what it was doing to us, and we completely abandon it and we turn away from it. I think a good picture of this is when we talk about Lot. Lot in Genesis. Lot's wife, Genesis chapter 19. Lot, the Lord is saving his family, only his family from Sodom before he destroys it. And he tells Lot, instructs his family, if you go and you're going to leave, don't turn around and look back at Sodom. Don't look back. Completely turn away from that place. Don't turn your face back towards it. You're done with it. It's over. Well, we know the story. Most of us do. As they're leaving, Lot's wife turns around, looks at Sodom, and immediately she turns into a pillar of salt. That's not a picture of repentance, is it? That's not a picture of what repentance truly should be. It is a complete abandoning and turning away from what you once believed. Not only is it a turning away from but it's a turning towards, and we will get to that in just a moment. But we have to understand that when we're talking about idolatry, we're not just talking about pagan beliefs in places unlike America. We have American idolatry, don't we, church? We have things that we worship that we shouldn't. Now, you maybe have never bowed down and worshipped a graven image or something like that, but we have to first look and see what an idol is. Romans chapter 1, it details this. It tells us in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, for his invisible, or verse 20, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, idolatry is not that you have an actual statue and that you're falling down and worshiping it. Sure, that's part of it, and we see that around the globe. Idolatry is just simply putting something before God. It's simply having something in your life that is more important, takes up more of your time, more of your passion than Christ does. Worship is not just defined as an act, such as bowing down or praying, 
but it's also defined as a lifestyle. Church, this is why it's so dangerous for us in America, because we don't see that anything can be an idol. Anything in your life can be idolatry. And we have to look for it and we have to understand that. We have to constantly examine ourselves and say, what is most important in my life? Is it Christ who has saved me or is it something else? We have to look for those things. Anything can be an idol. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. That's a hard truth to take, church. Because we do, we devote our time to so many things that often I think that we can have idols in our lives and we don't even realize it. I know I have. I know I have. I know I've had passions. I've, have, I've spent time on things that I shouldn't, not realizing that those things, even good things, have become an idol in my life. God should be and is the most important thing in a Christian's life. Period. Nothing else should take His place, ever, because He deserves that. He deserves that. Anything can be an idol, and true repentance involves smashing the idols of our heart because only when we do that do we truly turn towards our God. And this is where we get to the next part. Repentance is not only turning away from something, but it's turning towards God. That's biblical repentance. We turn away from something, we turn away from a false belief or our sin, and we turn towards God. Look there in verse 9 with me. Paul writes, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. True conversion involves an abandoning of our idols and a clinging to serving God. Look at that contrast in verse 9. I love this here. Paul says, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Do you see what he's doing there? He's contrasting idols with who God is. Idols, what is an idol? It's dead, it's fake, it's a lie, it's something man-made, it's not real. But who is God? God is living. God is a constant reality. He's always existed. He is eternal. He is true, always, objectively. He is the truth. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I'm the way, the what? Truth and the life. Paul says you turn from these dead things to this true thing, to this living thing, to who God is. In genuine repentance, we turn from that which is dead to that which is eternal. In genuine repentance, we turn from that which is a lie to that which is always the truth. Repentance begins with an understanding of our sin and seeing the truth of our lostness. In that, we turn from our sin to the God who promises salvation to all who believe. We've moved away from this idea of repentance. Because when you talk about repentance, you have to talk about the reality of our sin. We're all sinful, aren't we, church? Our culture doesn't like that word. We want to say mistakes, we're doing something wrong. Church, I'm going to say what Scripture says on this. We are sinful. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In sharing the gospel, you have to say this bad news before you get to the good news. We are sinful, yet... God calls us to repentance and salvation through Jesus. Church, that's good news. That's good news. And the church at Thessalonica, they seen that and they repented from these false idols and turned to the living and true God and served Him. We see this displayed. We mentioned this already. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the gospel is shared, we have a time where we're convicted of our sins and we have a choice. We have a choice. Are we going to be obedient? Are we going to repent? Or are we going to reject it? 
We see this group of people in Acts chapter 2. They're, they're convicted. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were convicted. They were convicted of their sin. They were convicted of the fact that they had just killed the Savior. They said, what do we need to do? I see our sin. I see what we've done. What do we need to do? And the very first thing that Peter said, verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent. Church, have you repented from your ways? Is your life marked by an initial repentance? When you heard the gospel, when you were convicted, did you turn away from those things that you were convicted of? Your sin, your false beliefs, whatever it was. Have you turned towards the truth of the gospel? And church, let me tell you, our life as a follower of Jesus is not just marked by an initial repentance when we just first hear the gospel, but a continual repentance. As a Christian, we live a lifestyle of repentance. Genuine repentance doesn't stop. It continues. Your lifestyle as a Christian is one of continual repentance. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 Jesus said to all of them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily repentance means looking at yourself, turning away from yourself, and continually turning towards Jesus. Because He's the one that saved you. He's the one that has changed you. So you look at your life, you look at the things that you do, and you turn towards Him constantly. Deny yourself, carry your cross, follow after Jesus. Christ. Our life as a Christian should be marked by daily repentance from self so that we may carry our cross and follow our Savior. Paul says this is first. This is the first factor to genuine Christianity that we see in this this church, what we should see in a Christian. The second thing that we see is a commitment to service. Look there in verse 9 again. It says, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They repented, and their repentance led to service. It is a wonderful thing, church, that we have so many people who serve this church, isn't it? We, we just seen that a minute ago. We just seen the numbers. How many did you say, Samantha? 68? 68 and kids only? We have over 70 people serving in our kids and youth program. It's incredible, isn't it? But like Samantha said, we still have spots open. We still have places open where there's always, there's always places to serve. There's always places to help. And what we see in genuine Christianity is not only should there be a repentance demonstrated, but there should also be a commitment to service. We should be committed to it. It should be consistent in our lives where we are serving our church because in serving our church, who are we really serving? Jesus. We're serving our God who has saved us through Jesus. Look at that word, serve. It says how you turn to God from idols to serve. That word comes from a Greek word that is doulos. That word means a bondservant, or to put it in layman's terms, it means a slave. It means someone who is obligated, under obligation, to serve. This means that we are to serve in complete subjection to what Jesus has called us to. Jesus saves you to be a child of His, yet He calls you to be obedient as a servant. When you come to true repentance in Christ and knowing who He is, guys, it just makes sense to follow after Him and serve Him. Be committed to serving who Jesus is. Isaiah chapter 6, we see a picture of this in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah sees a vision of God and these angels, and what does he say? He says, woe is me, 
He says, woe is me because I come from a people of unclean lips and I have unclean lips. He is saying, I am sinful and I've seen the holiness and the perfection of God. What happens to Isaiah? His sins are purged. His sins are cleansed. And right after that, the Lord says, who will go for us? Who shall I send? Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. It just made sense. When Isaiah knew that his sins had been forgiven, when Isaiah knew that the Lord had purged his sins, he said, I'll I'll go. I'll do it, Lord. I'll go where you send me. I'll do whatever you want. I don't even know what it is, but I'm going to go. I like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Of course, we know that verse. It says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. It goes on in most modern translations to say, this is your spiritual worship. I like how the King James puts it. King James says, this is your reasonable service. It just makes sense, church. When you understand what Jesus has done for you on the cross, when you understand that He has saved you from your sins, it just makes sense to serve Him. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to know that, man, when someone truly knows Jesus, we shouldn't have to force them to serve. We shouldn't have to force them to serve Jesus because it just makes sense to do it anyways. That's what Scripture tells us. It's not my opinion. That's That's Scripture. That's what we see time and time in believers' lives in Scripture is that when they repent, they at that point continue to commit to serve. So not only should we see a repentance demonstrated, not only should we see a commitment to service, but also we should see a waiting for Jesus. Look there in verse, verse 9 again into 10. It says, How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That word wait, it means to wait, of course, but with patience and trust. It means to wait patiently, continually trusting that Jesus is coming for us. That's what Paul says. Not only had they repented, not only were they serving, and we've seen last week that they were being examples in their, in their faith and the way that they shared the gospel. He says also, you're waiting for Him. You're looking for Jesus constantly. Church, Jesus is coming back. Amen? He is coming back. And we don't know when that is, do we? If anyone tells you, I know when He's coming back, they're lying to you. No, they don't. We don't know when He's coming back. But I'll tell you this, every day it gets a day closer. Every moment it gets a moment closer to when He's going to return for His church. I believe that He is coming back for us in church. I hope that you do too. And Paul says, you are waiting for Him. Even 2,000 years ago. That you're, you're serving Him, but you're also waiting for Him. You're also understanding while serving that He's coming back for you. He's not left you. He is coming back for His church. This is a genuine trait of a gospel-centered Christian in longing for Jesus, hoping for His return, knowing that He's coming back, patiently waiting for Him. He's coming back. This is a theme of 1 Thessalonians. Paul encourages this church through the entire letter of Jesus' return. He mentions it nine times very clearly that Jesus is returning. This is the second of nine times where he's referencing the return of Jesus. So not only is he saying you're serving, but you're also waiting for him. And then he goes on in the letters to continue encouraging them, saying he is coming back. Church, he is coming back. And while we wait, we serve. While we serve, we wait. Now that may seem like the last two points are almost opposed to each other. That in serving, we're not really going to be waiting, but in waiting, sometimes we don't want to serve. I want you to listen to this quote by a man named John Stott. It's kind of a long one, but hang in there. I think it's worth it. Speaking on this passage, he says, Serving and waiting 
go together in the experience of converted people. In Christian terms, serving is getting busy for Christ on earth, while waiting is looking for Christ to come from heaven. Yet these two are not incompatible. On the contrary, each balances the other. On the one hand, however hard, hard we should work and serve, there are limits to what we can accomplish. We can only improve society. We cannot perfect it. We shall never build utopia on earth. For that, will, that we have to wait for Christ to come. On the other hand, although we must look expectantly for the coming of Christ, we have no liberty to wait in idleness, with arms folded and eyes closed, indifferent to the needs of the world around us. Indeed, we must work even while we wait, for we are called to serve the living and true God. Thus, wait, working and waiting go together. In combination, they will deliver us both from the presumption which thinks we can do everything and from the pessimism which thinks we can do nothing. Church, we should be serving and waiting. Serving as hard as we can, wherever we can, while at the same time waiting for Jesus to return. Knowing that our Savior is coming back and knowing that with Him He is bringing our eternal rest. You know, I have a recliner at home. It's my favorite thing at home, a recliner. You've seen it, honey. I like it. I like it. And every day I sit in that recliner. I do. I'm sorry, I do. Anyone else have a recliner in here? A few of us? They're great, aren't they? When we bought our house a few years ago, we bought a recliner. It's the best thing that's happened in our home. It's fantastic. I love that piece of furniture. She's shaking her head, but it's true, honey. It's a great piece of furniture. And in that recliner, I sit in it daily, and every single day I forget really how comfortable that recliner is. I take it for granted. I don't think about it. But you know when that, comfortable fe that recliner feels the best? is after a long, hard day of work. Maybe I've done a bunch of work outside. Maybe it's been a busy day at church, doing stuff at church. And I've been on my feet all day without even realizing it. And then I go and I go in the house and I plop down in that recliner. And man, it feels fantastic. Church, let me tell you, you know what's going to make the rest in eternity even better? It's how hard you serve right here on this earth. You have a job. We have a job to serve and wait, knowing that what we're doing here is not in vain knowing that what we're doing here is not all for nothing. That as Jesus is coming back, we should continue to serve. Church, these are three things that we should see in a Christian, genuine Christianity. A repentance demonstrated initially, continually. A commitment to service. And finally, a waiting for Jesus to return. And church, I want to end reading Scripture and really give you an opportunity for the altar. Because in talking about repentance, and Brother Jim has said this multiple times, we should never take it for granted that everyone in this building is truly saved. We should never take it for granted that everyone in this building has truly trusted in Christ, repented from their sins, and trusted in Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we read this last week, a couple of these verses, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Non-Christian, if you're out there and you've never repented from your sins and trusted in Christ, there's not a better time than right now. Now is the time. If you have heard the gospel and you understand what Jesus has done for you and that He calls you to repentance and He calls you to belief, 
It's time. Church, I'm fixing to pray for us. If you need to pray at this altar as a Christian, if you need to come up and receive salvation, now's the time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, God. Thank you for this time that we can be here, Father, as your church. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the truths in your word. God, what should be there in our lives as Christians, the genuineness of our faith. God, I pray that you would help us as we go through this time of, of invitation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, that God, they would, they would at this time, they would come, they would talk, talk to us, pray to you, Father. Truly come to know you. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. And Father, most of all, we thank you for Jesus, who died for us, who took our place so that we could be with you again. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You would stand with us. <laughs>